Yeah, so DeFi is like a, a supercharged word, and I think rightfully so. And my honest opinion is is that the vast majority of DeFi is kind of this like this grift and this scam and these kind of like excuses to to create these tokens and these narratives and all of that like I very much agree with. But there is this small, like tiny subset of it that is is very legitimate and that it's a noble cause worth worth building towards. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week I have on David C. Roy. David, welcome. Thanks, appreciate you having me. For sure. Uh, so for those that don't know you, who are you, what is your background, and how did you get into Bitcoin? Yeah, sure. So I'm, I'm no one special. Uh, for the past five or six years, uh, I owned a private lending company outside of Bitcoin. Um, I recently sold that company uh, probably about six months ago. So now I spend uh, most of my days just kind of like doom scrolling through Bitcoin Twitter and and reading, uh, you know, any topics that kind of interest me. A lot of that happens to be Bitcoin related, but, you know, not necessarily. Um, my introduction into Bitcoin, um, I guess, you know, I really didn't get into Bitcoin until probably like the, the, the 2017 run up. Uh, but as much as like, you know, over a decade ago um, in 2011, I started reading Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged, and that led me to objectivism, and that even led me to interviews with Peter Schiff, and and so I was, I was very much kind of a, a hobbyist of the kind of like libertarian movement, and so when I did finally find Bitcoin and make that connection, I, uh, you know, I think I was able to grasp it very quickly because I came from that kind of ideological and, and, and philosophical underpinnings. Um, I always joke that like, uh, you know, whenever people post on Twitter and they say, uh, you know, tag the person that like got you into Bitcoin. I, I always tag Peter Schiff um, because it's true. Like, I mean, over 10 years ago, I was watching his videos and, and him kind of talking about, you know, gold and capitalism and free markets and him going, you know, down to Wall Street and, and, and talking to the protesters. Um, so, you know, uh, thank you, Peter, for getting me into Bitcoin. Nice. Pretty funny. Yeah, I definitely think it's a lot easier for people to, like, see Bitcoin rather quickly if you have, like, a certain political or, like, economic bias rather than if you're, you know, certain, like more of like an academic type, I guess. And you don't see, I guess, like the libertarian mindset as clearly as others. You have a very difficult time, you know, understanding Bitcoin. Even if you spend a lot of time looking at it, you still like your bias kind of prevents you from seeing what other people might see. 100%. Um, so you've been thinking, I know a lot about, like a Bitcoin based economy, like how this is all going to play out in the long run, how it's going to function. Um, can you dive into some of your ideas behind, you know, like layered money? I know Nick Batia wrote his book about that. I know you're a fan of, of him, you know, Bitcoin banking systems and just kind of like the general relationship between like Bitcoin and the dollar. Start with that wherever you want and can be more of an intro high level overview of your thoughts. Yeah, for sure. So, so most of the discussions that that I have around what will a a, a Bitcoin based economy look like typically come down to um, you know how people perceive credit money in the economy, right? And, and and so specifically, you know, in Bitcoin circles in particular, there there's very much this idea that the issuance or the existence of any sort of credit money whatsoever, which is money that can kind of be created arbitrarily out of thin air. Uh, like IOUs and, and and really like the dollar, like the existence of any sort of credit money is both incompatible and antithetical with with a a Bitcoinized world. And in many ways, like I'm super sympathetic to to that point, right? Like as Bitcoiners, 
you know, we champion self-sovereignty, right? We, we don't like counterparty risk. We think that the issuance of credit money can lead to malinvestment and that it's this hidden tax that causes inflation and theft and, and that, um, uh, you know, and that the dollar is the instantiation of like all of these these negative things that 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 we hate, and that Satoshi sent us this this life raft of twenty one million to like break us out of this monetary madness. Like all of that very much resonates with me, and I think with most Bitcoiners. At the same time, there's this undeniable truth that that both presently and throughout history, there is an insatiable desire to to issue credit money to 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 to, to have credit into the monetary system, and while Bitcoin may have solved some of these issues, like the instant settlement and being able to send, you know, Bitcoin instantly over the Internet without any sort of intermediaries, I don't think that it completely eliminates the the demand and the desire for credit money in the economy. And so as much as we can sit here and preach, you know, self-sovereignty and hard money and incentives and time preferences, I don't think that will ever eliminate credit. And so a lot of people have, have have kind of talked about this and they've laid out these roadmaps of like, you know, how a Bitcoin economy may, may work as early as like, you know, 10 plus years ago, how Finney was referencing George Selgin's free banking work on the Bitcoin talk forums. You know, more recently, like you alluded to, you know, Nick Batia wrote this book, Layered Money, where he talks about how these kind of these hierarchies of, of money typically form where you could have Bitcoin at the base and then, you know, these these um, these other forms of money on top of that. People like Nick Carter have been talking about this for years. And, and even more recently, Eric Yakes has, has written some some really amazing work on it as well. And so all of this is to say, like, I don't think that we can ever escape this this kind of credit type money from being issued on top of Bitcoin. And so if it must exist, I'd rather it exist on our terms, where 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 Bitcoin is the collateral that underpins the entire monetary system. But we embrace and acknowledge that some form of credit creation is going to happen. Where it's really kind of started to excite me more recently is is that you know previously all of these ideas that that all those people I just mentioned had um, you know they were predicated on using the legacy banking system that that we would give up our Bitcoin to custodians like banks they would issue the I, IOUs and we just have this like huge amount of counterparty risk but now we kind of have this like small glimmer of light of of DeFi. And I think that reignites a lot of these conversations and allows us to bring those theories more um, into more practical ways. You know, like previously, if somebody tried to create like some sort of Bitcoin backed bank or or this this credit money, I mean, you're subject to the government regulations like you operate on this like hidden shadow ledger that you don't really know how much leverage is out there. There's no proof of reserves like all of these things prevented. Um, you know, a credible system from emerging on Bitcoin. But now I think that we can kind of start having that conversation again because of some of the new technologies that are coming out. Yeah, uh, very interesting. I know it's interesting how, like you said, there's some segment of Bitcoiners that are, you know, very opposed to, to credit, period. And then there's other segments, uh, like more maybe traditional finance Bitcoiners that are like, okay, there's going to be some form of credit um, in the future. And then you kind of have this, you know, somewhat unique background where you were in private lending. So you you know kind of more about credit so that you kind of have the, I guess, perspective of, hey, like this is kind of important and people use credit today so that they might use it in the future. Um, you brought up DeFi. I know a lot of people like the traditional Bitcoin maxi might cringe a bit. I know I sometimes do just in reference to what other people have done to DeFi. Um, how do you like can you dive deeper into DeFi and like why 
Would we build DeFi on something like Bitcoin instead of Ethereum? Yeah, so DeFi is like a, a supercharged word, and I think rightfully so. And my honest opinion is is that the vast majority of DeFi is kind of this like this grift and this scam and these kind of like excuses to to create these tokens and these narratives and all of that like I very much agree with. But there is this small like tiny subset of it that is is very legitimate and that it's a noble cause worth worth building towards. And so while I agree with the core Bitcoin ethos that that nothing is more important than this kind of self-sovereign, self-custody, deep cold storage, 21 million, all of that, you know, if we simply can only, you know, hold and transfer Bitcoin, the asset like that is not sufficient, in my opinion, like we must also decentralize these these financial services and these money creation layers. And if we ignore these monetary layers like this, this idea of finance, then, you know, we really relegate Bitcoin to a life of, of gold 2.0 in like all the worst ways, like a world in which central authorities will use this like inevitable demand to create credit and, and, and have custody in order to hijack our monetary sovereignty. And we'll see these perpetual issues like, you know, the BlockFi's and the Celsius's and the FTX's. Um, so I, I do think DeFi is really important. And while most of that is being done on Ethereum, like if we want this 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 Bitcoin world, like we want to slowly start bringing some of the good ideas from Ethereum over to Bitcoin as much as we possibly can. And I think a world in which, you know, you have the base layer Bitcoin, but then you have, you know, layers on top of that where you can do credible, trustless, decentralized finance that that provide fees and actual use case to block space on, on on, on the layer one is a very noble vision that's that's worth pursuing. Yeah, I fully agree that, uh, you know, 95%, 99% of DeFi that exists today is, is Ponzi-nomics scamming and, and just kind of people throwing money at things and trying to get a return. But I know one of the things that I'm excited about on, on Bitcoin DeFi is, is Bitcoin collateralized stable coins. I think mm -hmm. like a lot of people today, you know, we hear the tether FUD, which whether that's rightful or, or incorrect, you know, there is an extreme lack of transparency when it comes to assets like tether. Like, are they actually holding $60 billion worth of T bills and commercial paper, or is it all a facade? I mean, they are just another company in the Bahamas. <laughs> so if we had this, you know, over collateralized, Bitcoin-backed stablecoin that was very public. There was no trusted third party. I mean, I think that would be pretty valuable. What are your thoughts on on that idea of, of a Bitcoin-backed stablecoin? Yeah, I mean, it's so important. And, like, the implications of Bitcoin-backed credit is, like, in my opinion, it's it's the bridge to hyper-Bitcoinization, right? Like, instead of us, like, pinning these two things where it's, like, you either have to be in Bitcoin or the either have to be in dollars like we can create the synergy between the two if we have the ability to, to post up our bitcoin as collateral outside of a centralized custodian and then borrow dollars against that now all of a sudden you're holding bitcoin as an asset meaning you're hoping the store of value goes up relative to the dollar and because you're holding the dollars as a liability as debt as a loan that you've taken out against your bitcoin you're actually hoping that the dollar devalues it's a way for you to effectively short the dollar and so over this long enough time frame i think all of us are in Bitcoin because that's what we expect. We expect the dollar to keep inflating. We expect, expect monetary debasement to be happening. 
And so now no longer is it like, oh, do I have to hold, you know, my savings in Bitcoin or hold it in dollars? It's like you can have both like you can have your cake and eat it, too. And there's obviously, you know, trade offs and risks of, of doing that. But the bottom line is it creates this kind of synergy between it. And so, you know, I, I think. One, it links Bitcoin and the dollar together, but it also links these these disparate parts of, you know, Bitcoin development together right like on one hand you can self-custody bitcoin in deep cold storage you don't have to do any of this crazy credit creation stuff 21 million that's all you care about alternatively you can like i said you know borrow against your bitcoin take out dollars you know that single product product alone to be able to borrow it at say like a very low or zero percent interest rate is a use case at the same time people like alex gladstein you know are are, are really kind of you know coming to terms with the fact that dollars are very useful but in particular censorship resistant dollars and so we can we can create these Bitcoin backed stable coins for for people that um, that are saying, hey, like, I kind of like this Bitcoin movement, but like I live in a third world country, like I can't have this volatility, like I need a stable coin to give them a censorship resistant stable coin where as they demand that stable coin, they're indirectly driving value to more Bitcoin collateral to mint those stable coins like that is so beautiful. And then eventually, you know, I'm not hyper technical. But like you could start having these these Bitcoin backed stable coins, you know, flying around on Lightning Network via Taro or RGB or what, like, you know, John Carvalho and Paulo and Tether and those guys are working on with with Hypercore and, and, and issuing credit that way. It's like this is cool. And, it, and and I think it brings together all of these worlds. So that's, you know, super important to me. Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the projects that's kind of doing this right now is sovereign zero product which i've talked about before on this podcast talk about it some on twitter i've had uh eden yago on the podcast now we have you because i know you're at least somewhat involved with with sovereign um and then there's other projects that are also being built on bitcoin fuji money is another one i met uh met you in amsterdam but i also met uh one of the fuji money guys in amsterdam too um so there's, there's these products like this, like the zero product. Can you explain like a, in a little bit more detail like how that works and what this is in relation to what we're talking about? Yeah, sure. So so zero is is effectively uh, two products. And so for context, like, you know, you can't build, you know, generalized smart contracts on Bitcoin. So it's done on a layer two, which in this case would be a side chain. So there is some level of trust involved. Uh, at least for now, and I'm sure we'll touch on validity proofs, you know, in a little bit. Um, but zero essentially allows you to lock Bitcoin collateral into a smart contract and then borrow against that, uh, borrow stable coins against that at zero percent interest. Uh, you know, some people may see this as similar to something like uh, like Unchained Capital, where you put in, you know, Bitcoin collateral into a multisig and then they give you dollars. But now we're abstracting that on chain where the Bitcoin will go into a smart contract as opposed to the custodian. And then instead of receiving dollars, you're receiving this new kind of Bitcoin backed stablecoin, and then it's 0% interest for that. Um, that's the primary use case of, uh, of zero. Yeah, it's very interesting. And it's, it's still very new, but there's already from what I've seen, like 500 Bitcoin tied up in zero with about like 4.6 million dollars in lines of credit open uh that are you know basically this ZUSD this bitcoin collateralized stablecoin so it's actually like out in the wild uh and it's working so that's kind of cool unlike you know a lot of other things that people just talk about and never actually gets implemented um but yeah it's going to be very interesting to see like what happens with this 
over time. And the way I kind of see it, it is, you know, people think about this and they hear it and they're like, oh, 0% uh, interest on a Bitcoin-backed loan. Like, how is that even possible? And, yeah. and it's interesting because the way it kind of I'm thinking about it, I want to get your perspective on how, like, it's possible and how it works is someone is, is actually, you know, loaning out money to you at 0% interest in a way, right? We have Tether and we have USDC. People are effectively loaning billions of dollars to Tether. They get an IOU token back, USDT, and they're holding that token and they're, they've lent the billions of dollars to Tether. So the zero protocol is kind of just connecting what's already a, a huge market, the stablecoin market, with the demand to borrow against Bitcoin. And these markets are both massive, but extremely disconnected. And now there's potentially a new way like zero or Fuji money to connect these markets in a fairly trustless manner. Curious to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I think that's, you know, a pretty good explanation. You know, I'll, I'll elaborate on that and say, you know, it's actually kind of borrowing from from how, you know, banks work. You know, when you go to a bank and you say, hey, can I get a million dollar loan? And they approve you. What they are not doing is they are not taking deposits from other people and then giving you that million dollars. They're instead literally creating a million dollars, you know, out of thin air onto their balance sheet. And so zero kind of operates the same way, right? As soon as you post up collateral and you want to borrow it, you know, say you wanted to borrow a million dollars and you posted up two million dollars of, of Bitcoin collateral, those million uh, uh, dollars of new stable coins are minted out of thin air. They previously did not exist. So being able to lend something at 0% interest is really easy. We just create the token out of thin air. The, the, the difficult part is how do you make sure that at any point in time, anybody that receives those stable coins can say, hey, I have one of these stable coins that I got from, from Joe. I wanna redeem this for, for $1 of Bitcoin. How can you make sure that the peg always maintains one at, at $1? Um, and, and so that's kind of where the rub is. And it does that by, by making sure that the system is always over collateralized. That, that you know, in that example, where if you have $2 million of Bitcoin collateral, and then you mint a million dollars of ZUSD that as the price kind of fluctuates, that the system never becomes under collateralized, where there's never more liabilities outstanding than there is, um, you know, assets backing it. So it's it's an over collateralized stable coin. You know, some people that are familiar with like like MakerDAO on on Ethereum, it's kind of like that. But I would say with improvements to prevent the system from ever becoming backed by like USDC or another another stable coin. But that's the key is 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 can the system always stay over collateralized? And so it has to be battle tested and modeled out and say, well, what if Bitcoin drops 80 percent? Is the system at risk of becoming fractional reserve? And while we've done, you know, significant modeling and, and, and there's reason to believe that it won't become fractional reserve, that risk does exist. And if it does happen, the key here is because everything is tracked, you know, on chain because DeFi, you know, you have 24, 7, 365 you know, cryptographic proof of, of how many ZUSD, how many liabilities have been issued against how many assets of Bitcoin. And as those prices fluctuate, you can immediately see if the system ever becomes under collateralized. And that, you know, um, it's kind of like we alluded to, you know, George Selgin's free banking <clears throat> earlier on in this podcast. Like part of the reason why free banking works is that you can have note dueling where where if certain you know banks or in this case protocols are at risk of going under where somebody thinks hey i think they're fractional reserving then they can attack that and and they can try to break that 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 peg and so that's just these this 
key part of what excites me so much is that we could have this Cambrian explosion of all of these different, you know, credit experiments where some people are fractional reserves, some people are over collateralized. And over time, it'll kind of create this equilibrium where where the weakest protocols will be attacked because there's full 100% information transparency. And then the strong ones will survive. Um, so I maybe went off on a little bit of a rant there. But, um, you know, to recap, Zero is built as this over collateralized stablecoin. At any point in time, you can see what the reserves are, and that's how we're able to do it at 0% interest. Yeah, and it's definitely a, sh a very sharp contrast to, to something like Luna and UST, which obviously completely blew up. You know, it was a very under-collateralized <laughs> stablecoin uh, that was kind of like financed by like fake yield that people, VCs, I guess, were kind of funding into UST. They were like, hey, earn 20% interest. And then every time you know people put money into that, Luna goes up some, and eventually it just kind of all unravels uh, to zero. <laughs> so very, totally. very different from that. And kind of like you said earlier, or like we talked about earlier, it's potentially a lot more transparent and trustless. Like Tether is so very untransparent. Even USDC, there's counterparties and governments that you know can censor or blacklist uh, you know addresses. So this is like completely different. There's not really a middleman. Uh, there are potential problems, like we talked about. Like it's not 100% trustless. It's not on the base chain Bitcoin. And you mentioned like validity rollups. Can you talk a little bit more about that or, or other things that might make DeFi on Bitcoin more trustless? Yeah, sure. So for context, I, I want to kind of explain the side chain concept. You know, really basically. So we 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 mentioned how you can't do these kind of fully expressive smart contracts on Bitcoin, which which is a feature, not a bug. You know, we want this simple base layer. So people created these these you know layer twos, these things which are called side chains. Uh, a side chain is a separate blockchain, and what you can do is you can take your Bitcoin from the, the the Bitcoin main chain and you can bridge it onto the side chain. The issue is when you bridge that on there, it's technically an IOU. Um, there's some sort of like federation, which is you can think of it as like a complex, you know, multi-sig that that creates this new Bitcoin on the side chain that gives it all of these kind of, uh, you know, powers and allows you to to kind of create these these smart contracts. But the trade-off is you have this like counterparty risk. So for for years, I mean, most of Bitcoin, it's like this. Um, the holy grail is like, can you create this this um, you know trustless two-way peg that you can have a similar type of setup where you can bridge into another ecosystem, but it's not, you know, a trusted IOU or a federation that's issuing that. And, you know, to Ethereum's credit, like they've had some amazing, amazing uh, work that's been done on this front with with things that uh, are called, uh, they're referred to as, as ZK rollups. Um, they're probably more properly should be defined as a validity rollup. But this would be a way to create this kind of trustless two-way peg between Bitcoin and another ecosystem. And you can think of a, a validity rollup almost as like a, um, like a trustless compression technique. So you can have this, this separate blockchain uh, that you can bridge your Bitcoin onto. And it can perform all of this complex computation and smart contracts. And then you can compress it into a single proof. That blockchain, it can be owned and ran by Darth Vader. It can have a, a, a single node. It can be the most trusted and centralized thing ever. But when they create that compression proof, they have to mathematically prove the validity of the computation that was complete. And so when you bring it back and you try to submit that to Bitcoin, 
the Bitcoin main chain would verify and say, hey, you know, you submitted to us this proof. You cannot forge this. So great. Now we will transition the state and essentially say, hey, we validated that, you know, David transferred one Bitcoin to to Joe. And so this could allow us again that 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 trustless two way peg where you can have these isolated ecosystems on 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 Bitcoin, where you could have, you know, shielded transactions, you could have DeFi, you could have like anything you could possibly imagine, including like just scalability benefits, you know, things that don't have trade offs like lightning and and and, uh, uh, you know, liveness issues. Um, There's a lot of cool things that could happen with a validity proof. Now, the trade off is, you know, you'd have to bring in a soft fork in order to get that done. And so you'd have to have something like um, uh, like recursive covenants, where essentially people could pool their their Bitcoin into a single UTXO. Uh, so you know we have this UTXO, and then you and I can join that, or we can exit it. It's permissionless, but once you're in that, think of that as like a separate little side chain there. And so that side chain, uh, or I should say, that UTXO you know, operates as this kind of like validity roll up where we can do all of this, you know, computation, smart contracts, and the state transitions get submitted into the UXO, UTXO, the Bitcoin main chain verifies the proof, and, and all is good. That's probably the extent of, of, of I think, how in depth we can get into it. Um, I think it's something that a lot of Bitcoiners should at least entertain. And there's a researcher who also works on Sovereign uh, named John Light, um, who was enlisted by Alex Gladstein and the Human Rights Foundation to write this research paper on Bitcoin validity rollups. It's an amazing, amazing paper, and I really encourage people to check it out. And maybe in a very conservative manner, years down the line, we could implement validity rollups. I think it's technology that that warrants at least a conversation. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's certainly something that I've been diving into more recently over the past few months. I actually reached out to John, John Light, who wrote the paper, and we're going to have him on the Blocker podcast to have a much more in-depth conversation and the trade-offs and the risk associated with it as well. But yeah, it's 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 very interesting because you know Blockstream, you know Adam Back, he's a huge he's a proponent of sidechains. He's he has this quote that I you know saw at the Amsterdam conference that sidechains are innovation without speculation. Right, it's a way that we can you know bring that programmability that you know, scalability, that privacy to Bitcoin in a way, if we have some technology like uh, validity uh, drive chains, that makes it more trustless uh, in the future. So it's definitely very interesting, and it'll be cool to see how how the conversation progresses over time. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the Zero um, protocol specifically. I know, like, Sovereign has issued, like, in the past, they issued, like, a Sovereign token. How is that related to the Zero protocol? Yeah, uh, well, the sovereign token isn't needed for for anything. Um, uh, really, you can go in and you can bridge on to RSK, which is the side chain, uh, or interact with any of the the protocols that Sovereign has built, like Zero. And you don't even need to know the the sovereign token exists. You know, for Zero in particular, you just bridge over your Bitcoin. You know, you lock it into the smart contract, and then you choose you know how much of stable coins you you want to issue against it. Um, the purpose of the uh, SOV or the sovereign token uh, was frankly, you know, I think the developers needed it to, to bootstrap. Like, like not everyone is going to build, uh, you know, freely open source. Like, as much as that's a very noble pursuit, like there there are financial incentives at play, and, and and that allowed the team to kind of, you know, build out and bootstrap a lot of these protocols. 
It could be seen as like a governance token, whether that has use or not, or even like pseudo equity. Uh, you know, I'm not going to take an opinion on 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 whether it's you know the SEC is going to come in or, or or whatnot. But that's kind of the role that it plays. The bottom line is like the 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 sovereign team, in my opinion, is is, is much more uh, missionary than than mercenary, and they, they've built this out with like the Bitcoin ethos in mind that they they didn't want to introduce like another shitcoin where it's like, oh, you have to use this to pay gas fees, or this is like a utility token or whatever. Like, if you don't want to use it, you don't want to touch it, then then don't, you know? It, it, mm-hmm. It's really that simple. Yeah, definitely. Um, you were in a, po- uh, a Twitter space with uh, Eden Yago from Sovereign, who's like a big proponent of Zero and helped create Zero. And also, I think Corey Klipstein was there, and Samson Mao was there. And he you came up for like a, a split second. You asked like some really good questions and you made some really good points and you talked about, and we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but I kind of want to get more of your thoughts on it about a potential flywheel effect. I think that's like the words that you used mm-hmm. of, you know, there's this demand to borrow against your Bitcoin at a very low interest rate, potentially 0%. And there's this demand for dollars that are censorship resistant, no trusted third party. What's like, can you explain like the flywheel effect between those two demands and like how zero connects them maybe? Yeah, like this is one of the most exciting prospects to me, right? Like, like there's, there's kind of this, um, this like chicken and egg problem. And, and somebody says like, oh, you know, like, please use like our DeFi protocol. And like, we promise it's like good for Bitcoin or whatever. Like, I think the approach that, that, that we're taking is like, look, like if you don't want to use it, don't. But like, this is a legitimately like really cool thing. Like the ability to unlock you know, uh, funds like from your Bitcoin in a relatively trustless way, uh, you know, um, like that is super cool. And so like, we're not really asking for anyone's permission to say like, hey, come and use this. We're just providing products that that actually have real world use. And so the flywheel that you alluded to is, is, is twofold, right? Like one, people clearly want to borrow against their Bitcoin, like Unchained Capital, amazing, amazing company, like so incredibly grateful for, for, for what they've done in the community, but they're charging like, like, you know, 1% annual renewal fees and like 12% interest or, or, or whatever it is. Like a DeFi product where, where you can potentially get that at 0% interest rate and a small origination fee, like that has huge demand. And I think that's why we're seeing growth in this. Additionally, you know, there are these people that, that, that we talked about and that Gladstein is referenced that, that want this kind of this censorship resistant dollar that has maybe more transparency than Tether that, that, that can't be subject to, you know, regulation if somehow the government ever like shuts down Tether. And so these two things together create a flywheel effect. Some people, they don't care about stable coins whatsoever. They just care about borrowing their Bitcoin. So they'll lock in their Bitcoin. They'll mint stable coins, which creates liquidity for the people that demand the censorship resistant dollars. Some people that demand dollars, they don't give two craps about about you know Bitcoin or borrowing against it, they want dollars. So as they demand more of these censorship-resistant dollars, that then you know creates uh, that, that 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 then forces more people to lock up collateral in order to mint the stable coins. And so we're tying together these two worlds, and we're creating this flywheel effect where it's kind of like each one perpetuates this kind of circle of growth. And I think this will naturally happen because of the human incentives involved. And it goes back to what I was saying, where it's like, we're not sitting here begging and being like, oh, please, like, like, use this protocol, use this protocol. It's like, hey, it's there if you guys want it. I just happen to think that what this, that these two products are things that people demand. And so it will naturally create this flywheel effect. Yes, yeah, certainly. And to make a point, like, it's, it's, it's definitely not perfect by any means. And I wouldn't recommend putting like 100% of your Bitcoin stack in anything like Zero totally. or Fuji. 
But it's certainly better than like the alternatives that exist today, right? Like it's way better than having locked your Bitcoin up in BlockFi and Celsius, tried to borrow against it. And you recently woke up over the past few months and you're like, oh, shoot, they don't have my Bitcoin anymore. So it's certainly better than that. I mean, there's different risks than that centralized solution, but it's very interesting. Um, so I know a lot yeah. of what zero. Well, ahead, quickly, yeah. Joe. Um, I, I just I, I do want to make sure I hammer this point home. Like I'm not sitting here and saying that this is risk free. Like you know what we're introducing, you're trading essentially this kind of like centralized custodian risk for for you know something like like smart contract risk. And so I think people should definitely proceed with caution. You know while the code has been audited and it's been working functionally great, like these things will gain Lindy over time. And um, you know, I don't want to come off as is the guy that's sitting here and and saying everything is safe. I think, um, you know, caveat emptor, uh, buyer beware. Um, but you know, these are cool things that are worth experimenting with, and over time, we hope that they will become extremely trusted and robust. And I just want to make sure I like hit that point home. Certainly, um, I liked how you brought up earlier. It's kind of two different products. How it's like one product is borrowing against your Bitcoin. The other one is holding this censorship resistant stable coin. And to me, it's actually kind of interesting because a lot of Bitcoiners may immediately think, oh, I want to borrow against my Bitcoin and like either buy more Bitcoin, buy real estate, do something else, buy treasury bonds and collect the spread. But also Bitcoiners could be like, okay, you know, I think Bitcoin like last year, I, I think Bitcoin, I didn't think this, but I should have thought this. I think Bitcoin is going to go down. Maybe I should like sell some of my Bitcoin and hold dollars. And if I want to hold dollars, the best dollar to hold is this new dollar that's censorship resistant that can't be taken from me. And then when I want to go back into Bitcoin, I can immediately just market by a you know, significant amount of Bitcoin without a bank uh, by holding that sovereign dollar. So Bitcoiners could be you know, using dollars just if they're speculating that Bitcoin might go down in the short term. Or if they're you know long Bitcoin, they're like, hey, like, I want to get more Bitcoin. They can borrow against their Bitcoin, get dollars, and then buy more Bitcoin. So there's kind of like Bitcoiners could be on both sides of this you know product, uh, just depending on what, what their bias is for the price in the short term. Twenty percent. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, so I know zero is, it has been based off something on Ethereum, like you mentioned. I think it was called liquidity. Um, what problems has that have, if, if you know them? And then, like, why do you think an algorithmic stablecoin like this hasn't caught on? I mean, like, the biggest stablecoins in the world right now are, are Tether and USDC. And we have things like DAI, and we have things like liquidity. We have this new ZUSD, the new Bitcoin-backed stablecoin. Why do you think those haven't caught on yet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, can you remind me the first part of your question? So why haven't yeah, the, the so, stablecoins caught on? Uh, like liquidity, which was oh, what right, Zero right, was right. based off of. Why I know it's like I think they have like a you know a two hundred million or so of LUSD, which is their Ethereum over collateralized stablecoin. Do you know like what problems liquidity has had and like why that has why that's not a massive market? Yeah. Okay. All right. So for context for people that don't know, yes, like Zero. What Sovereign built is based off of, you know, what liquidity this 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 protocol on Ethereum built out, right? So the kind of like chain of events is like, you know, years ago you had MakerDAO that issued Dai, which is this over collateralized stablecoin, and then in my opinion, a protocol like like Liquidity had modified some of that and improved it, and and brought it to Ethereum, and then now you know Sovereign is trying to bring that to to 
Bitcoin. Uh, Liquidity, uh, in my opinion, has been, you know, modestly successful, um, but it has had some small issues, you know, like the, the, the peg has maintained itself a little bit over one dollar. Um, it hasn't ever dropped below one uh, dollar for any significant amount of time. And, and overall, it's been quite stable through some pretty significant drops. So it is battle tested, but there are still things where where, you know, it struggled to kind of maintain its like perfect, uh, you know, one dollar peg. Sovereign has done some things that that will allow that to uh, you know not happen, and there's the ways that you can easily just swap from you know ZUSD, which is like the the stablecoin that's minted, into whatever other stablecoin you want. If you want you know Tether or USDC or you know BUSD at the Binance one, um, or eventually you know we'll just kind of add like you know bridges where you can get dollars off, and so this will help us you know maintain and stabilize uh, the peg. But to answer your question, like. Why have algorithm, algorithmic, algorithmic stablecoins uh, not taken off um, as much anymore? It's it's hard to say. I mean, the reality is is these these centralized stablecoins like like Tether and USDC they're monsters. You know, they have amazing teams, and I don't want to take anything away from them. But those are the most proven. You know, they are the most consistent. They have the greatest amount of 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 Lindy, and so I don't you know fault people for for going with those. But, you know, over time, like those are not compatible with with this kind of Bitcoin ethos and this Bitcoin vision that we want. Like, you know, I'd mentioned this before, but, you know, when you're when you're holding those like, you know, those tethers, like those were ultimately minted by by putting savings into dollars into fiat, you know, by using something like zero or ZUSD. It's like we're supporting the Bitcoin ecosystem, like we're supporting the Bitcoin collateral. And I think over time, like people will recognize that. And they will go more towards these uh, these stable coins. Also, as a point of clarity, like the term algorithmic stablecoin gets thrown around a lot, especially after like the Terra Luna debacle. Like, like that is a completely separate type of stablecoin that that wasn't backed by by anything. It it was like it, it didn't actually have any collateral backing it. So like to call that an algorithmic stablecoin and like what something like liquidity or what what Zero is doing is completely incompatible in in my opinion. Yeah, certainly. I mean, they're totally different things. Um, and, you know, one obviously was a catastrophic failure. The other one or the others are working in reality. Um, I want to kind of end the podcast somewhat with your view of, of like what hyper-Bitcoinization and hyper-Bitcoinization is. I know you talked about how you're, you're a fan of, of this, you know, credit being built off of Bitcoin. Um, right now, it seems like the dollar is like the main credit that we're that people are, are are utilizing with Bitcoin as collateral, do you think the dollar will always exist, or will people be borrowing something else against their Bitcoin? How do you think about this? I mean, I think in the short to medium term, like the dollar is is not going anywhere, um, and so it'll be kind of like this whole model that 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 we just described, where people use Bitcoin as their savings, as their collateral, as the kind of like twenty one million that can't be debased, and they'll borrow dollars against that you know, the dollar will continue to devalue, our Bitcoin will continue to, to increase in value, and it'll be this like beautiful, you know, uh, kind of synergy. Uh, in the long run, maybe the dollar exists, maybe it doesn't. But to your point, like, I don't think that eliminates, uh, you know, credit money completely. Like I could totally see, you know, some new credit money, um, a kind of like stable coin that is stable according to the, the actual like goods and services like a basket of goods and services in the economy so the dollar doesn't exist anymore but you know we have bitcoin which the purchasing power 
kind of depends on the um, the productivity in the in the economy. Like if technology is driving prices down, you know, you'll be able to purchase more with your Bitcoin. But there will inevitably be this like contingent of people that want to know like, hey, 10 of these units, you know, bought a barrel of of hay last year and like i can still afford that barrel of hay you know with 10 units like there there's going to be some sort of like measurement that people want in order to be stable and so i could see people uh you know using something like that as a substitute to the dollar um admittedly i haven't thought about that one too deeply but i do want to hammer home this point that like i i just don't think it's possible literally to to eliminate credit money completely like if I lend you, Joe, like one Bitcoin in the future in this hyper Bitcoinized world, like what I receive in return of that is some sort of IOU for me, whether it's like a verbal agreement we make right now um, or uh, like like a written piece of paper that says, hey, one year from now, you owe me one Bitcoin back. Like as soon as we make that 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 credit arrangement like that, that that loan and that borrowing, like we have just issued a brand new form of money. Like I have one, you know, Joe dollar. And that is, uh, you know, worth the, the fact that you owe me one Bitcoin a year based off of like the expectation that you'll pay me back in, in the interest rate. Like that creates a brand new form of money instantaneously, whether we like it or not. So even if we started from this idea of a hyper Bitcoinized world, everybody's saving in Bitcoin, like there is no other money whatsoever. Naturally, like new monies will form this hierarchy of money that kind of like Nick Batia talks about will automatically happen or we'll put money into custodians and they'll start issuing IOUs. Like, it's just impossible. So what I want to hammer home from this like podcast is, is like credit is inevitable. Like we can't escape it. So we have to build it on our terms, which means backed by Bitcoin. And we have to build it on chain, which means that there, there, there's no centralized custodians. And then we can always see the kind of the backing and the liabilities that are created. And this will usher in this like beautiful, self-accountable world of Bitcoin free banking. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see how Bitcoin, you know, changes economics in the future. Um, I, it's something that I've said in the past. I wish there were more academics studying like what, you know, life with Bitcoin would be like, um, because I don't think, you know, many academics take Bitcoin seriously to begin with. But uh, it has been growing like pretty steadily over you know the past 12, 13 years. And if we go on another bull run, I would think that they've got to start taking it seriously, but I thought that the previous bull run. So I don't know if, I don't know if it will actually happen. Um, it may just be a slow growth and we'll have to just figure it out as we go. Um, but yeah, I think it's a good spot to wrap it up. Um, where can people find you, learn more about you? And I know like a lot of your thoughts that you shared today were very interesting. Are you potentially like working on a report or something that you might share uh, about your thoughts on, on credit and Bitcoin? Yeah. Um, you can find me on on Twitter, David underscore Roy, S-E-R-O-Y. Um, you know, sometimes I'm a Bitcoin reply guy, so I apologize uh, <laughs> if there's, you know, uh, any good content or not. And then, yeah, I, I am writing a little bit of a paper, um, small, manageable, you know, four or five pages uh, that hopefully is getting published here in the next few weeks. Um, you know, I think it covers a lot of thoughts that we just went over. And if people want more, we could write a longer form piece, but it should be enough for people to kind of digest and, and chew on and then, uh, you know, throw some critiques at me. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast, David. Thanks, dude. See ya.